You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. About the text that we're looking at today, I was reminded of when I was, I think I was eight or nine years old, my brother Matt, who's two years younger than me, we got into a bit of a quarrel. Uh, We found my great-grandpa's golf set, which consisted of one golf club, one golf ball, and that was it. And uh, we found it in the shed. It was a left-handed club, so that was even better. And we decided that we were going to hit this ball out into this big grassy field. And we were in a fight because I had the ball, and I had the tee, and he had the club. And we knew once we hit it, whoever hit it first, we're never finding this thing ever again. There's just no way in this pasture we're going to find it. So I'm fighting. I'm getting the ball teed up. He's got the club. And, uh, and I'm, down, I'm down there, I'm getting it ready, and I'm the big brother, like, I'm going to hit it. And then you'll get a turn. This was very gracious and, and kind of me to go, I will assert my dominance, I will go first, we'll try to find the ball, then you can go. And he was getting angry with me. He was, I was in, eminently reasonable, and yet he was very angry. And so I was already kind of teed up, so to speak, so he swung that golf club as hard as he could, and he clocked me right in the forehead. I still have a scar right here. And blood just poured down my face. He got me good. That's probably the best golf shot he's ever hit in his life. But he, blood's pouring down my face. And, uh, and so I run to the porch, to the house. Mom didn't want me to get blood in the house, so she's treating my wounds on the front porch. And, um, and I'm going to be fine, but you know, you know how head wounds are. It's just flowing in my face. And my brother just started running. He's like, ah! And he starts yelling and running around. I killed him, I killed him, I killed him. So my dad's trying to calm my brother around, down. And I'm sitting there bleeding, and my mom and I are actually laughing at this point because it's just ridiculous. He felt terrible. But this quarrel, this quarrel that happened between the two of us, James tells us why that happens. And there's obviously much bigger quarrels than that. But what was at the heart? What was at the heart? What was in our hearts, my brother and I, that caused this quarrel? And what's at the heart of really every quarrel and war that we experience? And so today's message is going to be called War and Peace. War and Peace. Where do they come from? How do we... How does war happen with other people and even God? How, why does that happen? How, what, are, what, what happens there? And then how can we have peace? How can we have grace? So that's the title of our message here, James 4, 1 through 10. I think it'll be up on the screen. Let me read this for us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose That the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Such an amazing passage. We've been going through James, and James has been doing surgery on our hearts. Like, he just makes us look 
at issues in our life and doesn't let us look away, doesn't give any sort of any sort of way to sort of like wiggle out of things. Like he makes us look at this and it's for our good. It's like surgery. He's doing a heart work on us so that we would be godlier and our joy would be increased. That's what he starts the book with. Count it all joy. Everything I'm about to tell you, all the trials that are coming. And what we see in James, let me just summarize the book for you, is that we see two kinds of trials in James at the beginning. Trials from the outside, temptations from within, same word in Greek. Speaking of two kinds of trials, some on the outside that fortify our faith, some on the inside, temptations that threaten our faith. In chapter 2, we see that this two kinds of trials reveals two kinds of faith, faith that's alive, that works, and faith that's dead, that's mere talk. This overflows in two kinds of speech, chapter 3, blessing and cursing, two kinds of speech, guided by two kinds of wisdom that Scott talked about last week. There's wisdom from the world. It's going to be driven by selfishness and gain. It's going to... And then there's wisdom that comes from above that's peaceable and righteous. And that then shows fruit in two kinds of relationships. Two kinds of relationships. War or peace. Do we have war or peace with one another? And do we have war or peace with God? Like all of this book looks like random topics, but there's a flow to it. Two kinds of trials reveal two kinds of faith, overflowing in two kinds of speech, guided by two kinds of wisdom, producing two kinds of relationship. That's what we're going to look like today. What does our war with others, our conflicts, and our quarrels say about our spiritual condition and ultimately about our relationship with God, the more, most important thing? So verses 1 through 5 are the real reason for conflict. Bottom line, it's going to be proud selfishness. That's at the heart of every conflict. Verses 6 through 10 is the right response to grace because God's answer to our problem is going to be grace and more grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. See, humble repentance then is how we move out of the war of proud selfishness within us, with God, with each other, into humble repentance where we'll have peace. Peace in our hearts, peace with each other, peace with God. So that's why I'm born peace. Here we go. Now, this is a continuation, as we saw from last week, of James 3, 14 and 15. You'll seek sort of the connection here. This is a flow. Let me read that. It was last week's text. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We see that in our relationships. Why do you have quarrels? Because you have a heart that's bought into earthly wisdom. Selfish, proud selfishness. Verse 16, for where jealous and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. He's going to call that quarreling as we looked in our text. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, a harvest of righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay? So verses 1 through 5, the real reason for conflict is our proud selfishness. God opposes the proud. That's the real reason for our relational conflicts. You could look at your husband or your wife and go, that's it. It's yourself. No, actually, it's my selfishness, right? I am the biggest threat to this marriage. I'm the biggest threat to my kids. The biggest threat to my own life is my own proud selfishness. Augustine, famous theologian from the 400s, said that the first sin was one of pride. That's what it was about. You could be like God, you know. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, 
And all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, because the devil wasn't a glorious angel of light. Pride corrupted him. Pride leads to every other vice, he says. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the putting of myself first in and over God. So we see that express itself, that proud selfishness expresses itself in our relationships. If you want to know if you have pride selfishness, just know, have you had conflict with anyone? Well, there you go. Then you have the disease of pride selfishness. Look at, this is what he says, this horizontal war with others. In verses 1 through the first part of verse 2, what causes quarrels, literally wars, he uses the strongest language he can use here, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He's speaking to believers. He's talking about He's talking about fights even in the church, among brothers and sisters. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It's a good question. Is it not this? And he answers a question with a question. That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So verse 1 starts with this practical question. We can all relate to this. And then he answers with a rhetorical question, you, you, and what's going on in your heart is the reason that there is quarreling in your life. He answers with the word hedonis, the Greek word, therefore, that we translate hedonism, the passions that you have, that you want. You have an insatiable desire for pleasure. You want your way, and you want everyone else to want your way. Your insides is the source of your problem. Your wanter is twisted in on itself. There was a, back in the 1800s, late 1800s, there was a newspaper that asked for, it was an editor, asked for responses from the readers to say, what's wrong with the world? People sent all these things. G.K. Chesterton sent, sent a reply with two words, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. It was profound, profound to think about. What's wrong with the world? I am. My passions are the biggest problem with the world. He uses violent warfare terms here. These are words for war. You desire and you do not have, so you say something mean. It says you murder. Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that if you harbor anger in your heart towards someone, you're guilty of the sin of murder. He might be pulling on that. Some have wondered if maybe he's speaking literally here, that actually there has been some murder in the church. Hard to say. Hard to say if he's using this hyperbolically. Maybe he's trying to go back, get our minds to go back to Cain and Abel, where the desire within Cain, the jealousy within Cain, caused him to murder his brother in Genesis 4. Or maybe we can think of 2 Samuel 11, where David's passions run away with him, and he ends up murdering Uriah. This unchecked desire. Things not going your way, and so you will get someone out of your way. You will do what it takes. So maybe he's using very strong language here. Maybe he means it literally. Maybe he means it hyperbolically. Maybe he's trying to pull back into biblical history. Or maybe he's saying something about, maybe it's all these things, but maybe it's also the fact that within the spiritual community of the church, we can do incredible damage. There's it, church, Nothing hurts like church hurt. Nothing hurts like church hurt, and some of you know that, that people can kind of be almost spiritually murdered by how they're treated in church because of selfish 
People can be turned off from church, turned off from the gospel, can in a sense be cut off from life because of the preferences and passions, the hedonism of so-called believers, right? Maybe, maybe it's all of those things. Maybe James is choosing this word for murder. Some commentators have wondered if that's actually a mistake. Does he really mean something that intense? I think he does. If we've read James, <laughs> he doesn't pull punches. He goes to level 10. And the reality is, is that it's possible for even so-called Christians in the church to reach such a level that they would commit literal murder. But we all, if we use the rubric of Jesus, have probably harbored anger that Jesus says is, like, is a form of murder. And there's nothing like church hurt. This supernatural community that's supposed to be so healing and nurturing can be weaponized and do something that feels like murder in the heart. So you desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet. Just another way of saying the same thing. Passions, desires, coveting. And you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You just pick at each other. Underhandedness. You set your heart. The word covet there is to set your heart on. You just got to have this thing. Live for this promotion, live for this relationship, etc. It's like a life curved in on itself, as one person said. It's all about me. I live for me, and I want other people to live for me, too. I hate that you don't live for me, too. Right? It's putting yourself at the center of the solar system, which just creates chaos, right? It's good that the sun is at the center of the solar system. It's big enough to handle it. But if you were to put earth at the center, everything would come crashing in, right? The same is true. So this selfishness, this prideful selfishness is I want to be God. I want to be the center, and it ruins all of our relationships. Because people also want to be the center of the world, right? And we have conflict. And you can trace every conflict, no matter how complex it is, down to this selfishness. The conflict with Russia and Ukraine is about selfishness in the heart and pride. I want that. I'm going to take it by violence. It's all, it all comes down to this same problem. It's the problem in the garden. It's at the root of everything. It's the sin behind all other sins, is proud selfishness. So our horizontal war with others says something about our spiritual condition, and it's not good. Second part of verse 2 tells about a vertical war with God. So actually, that's not the worst of our problems, the murdering and the quarreling. That's not the worst of our problems. Here's the worst of our problems. Look at verse 2 through 5. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask it wrongly to spend on your passions talking about prayer. You're wanting to use God not as a father but as a genie. You're wanting him to orbit you. And so he says, no, like a good father, right? Like a good father who doesn't give destructive things to his kids, he's like, no, I'm not giving you what you want. Absolutely not. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? So in verse 2, you got these burning desires that are wrecking your horizontal relationships. And then these desires, which you're not even going to God with those, no prayer, so therefore you don't get the satisfaction that you deeply want. And then when you do, you ask inappropriately, trying to manipulate God for yourself. And God refuses to be your genie or your butler and give you what you want when you want it. He has the audacity to think that he's God and you're not, and that makes you angry, right? Well, fine, I just won't pray if he won't give me this, okay? Okay. 
pout if you want. <laughs> He's a good father. He's not going to do something that is destructive. And James almost gets exasperated here. Verse 4, literally, adulteresses, like exclamation point. This is unfaithfulness to your covenant partner. This is, you're a believer. You're in relationship with God. And you're cheating on God. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? God wants this excuse, exclusive relationship with the heart of his people. And what you're trying to do is you're kind of like literally I, the picture here is you're getting in bed with the world and you're also wanting the benefits of being with God too. And God's like, this is an exclusive relationship. This is, he, he's speaking to the believers here going, you're adulteresses. You're trying to get your desires met from the world and it's wrecking everything and now you're at war with God, Right? You're going outside of this covenant to get your desires met, to get your fulfillment, to get your... It's like a marriage relationship, right? It's a, that's a war on your marriage to commit adultery, right? That's, what, that's the imagery here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? You've got to pick. can't be married to both. can't be seeking to find your pleasure in both. You got to pick. Verse 5, or do you suppose that it's no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Using God and using others, your relationships, your prayer life reveal, or your lack of prayer life reveal, cheating, covenant breaking, two-timing, this desire for two lovers, God and the world, I want to have it both ways. And in verse 5, we have this really interesting phrase. We have this really interesting quote that presents two Bible problems. Two Bible problems. Verse 5, or you do not suppose, or do you, do, sorry, do you, or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So what verse is he quoting? Doesn't exist. He's not quoting any particular passage here. This has been a problem for some going, oh, see, Bible's bad. Can't even get their own quotes right. Seems like what he's doing is actually summarizing some of the thoughts that we have in the Old Testament. The scriptures teach us. He's summarizing. He's not quoting an exact verse. He's summarizing here. But doesn't the Bible teach us that God is a jealous God and wants an exclusive relationship with us? Can't we go back to a whole bunch of passages where God calls his people to faithfulness to himself? That God has put something in mankind that he wants, and he's put something in mankind that wants God, but tries to find it in all these other places. So it's not actually a Bible problem. I think James is just summarizing like we would say, and we would summarize that the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. What verse would you point to? Well, you have to point to a lot of verses that sort of put these things together. So this is actually not too hard of a Bible problem, but he is summarizing, not quoting a particular text, but saying the scriptures teach us that God is desires us, and God has put something in us to desire us. The second Bible problem is that this is a really difficult verse to translate. Um, Justin might be able to help us with this. I'm going to give, here's some, some of the challenges with this one. Is that, is the spirit here, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, is that just human spirit? Is that just like being human? God desires to have his breath back, the image of God? He desires to have a relationship with every single human being. 
Or is the Spirit referring to the Holy Spirit that He puts in believers, and He wants that Holy Spirit to produce fruit in us and a love for Himself and an exclusiveness? Both of those could be true. Or it could be that the verse could be translated that it's actually our spirit that's yearning. That God has put a spirit in us that desires something beyond us. And when it gets warped, it ruins our relationships. But there's actually a spirit within us that desires God. God has put a spirit in us. Augustine would put it this way, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you get that? Could be translated that way. The Greek is tricky. Is it possible that maybe a better translation would be he has made a spirit to dwell in us that yearns jealously? The human heart has an insatiable, God-given desire for pleasure. And that pleasure is meant to be satisfied only in God. And because of our pride and our selfishness, our corruption, we look for it everywhere but God. And therefore, we're enemies of God deserving of his wrath, deserving of his punishment, because we take the good gift that he has given us, the gift of desire for himself, and we have turned it in every direction but him. We have weaponized it against him. We have stolen his glory. We have taken his breath and cursed him, and we curse people made in his image. And we want to be God. He's made an insatiable desire within us, for meaning and for purpose, for identity, for pleasure, for relationship. And we corrupt it every single way and we are enemies of God and we deserve to be at war with God. We deserve to be defeated by God because it destroyed this good creation. Prideful selfishness destroyed this creation and God is going to be God and God is going to be glorious and God is going to be the center and he is relentlessly holy and relentlessly glorious. And I think... Part of what is so agonizing about hell is that those desires won't go away. They'll just remain forever unfulfilled. This desire for God that we feel so anxious about, that we feel like, can you imagine having no hope of ever having any of those? There's always ever going to be corrupted and unsatisfied. And you'll receive nothing but wrath against God. You'll get what you want in a sense which is, a, is separation from God. I refuse to have that desire found in God, and God goes, okay, it will be wrath for you. Those desires won't go away. They'll just be forever unfulfilled. You see the problem? We get to the end of verse 5, and we're like, oh, gosh, this is bad news. That little tiff that I have with my kids or my spouse that conflict, it all just points to this sin problem that's in all of us. Even within believers, like even believers quarrel about stuff. It's that same sin thing. It's that same Genesis 3. It's that same demonic, satanic response. This desire, these desires that in some sense are God-given, but they're corrupted and they're expressed in all these broken ways. But... And that's the key. That's the next key word, verse 6. But this is your situation. You're locked in. You're at a dead end. You can't get out of this corner. You've got an insatiable desire. You've got insatiable passions. And you can't find an expression for them. You can't find a way out. You are destined for enmity with God forever. But, but, 
And look what, look what God's answer is in verse 6. He gives more grace. So here's the right response. God's going, what, you know what you need is more of my grace. This is speaking to believers. They've already received grace, but now they're under the right judgment of being murderers, sinners, enemies of God, adulteresses. Like we're talking about believers here. You know what God says? I'm done with you. I don't have any more time for you. No, I've got more grace for that. You know what you need is more grace. I don't, I'm not running out. I'm not running out. That's his solution to the sin problem of human beings. Even these Christians, he gives more grace. The answer to your hopelessness is the grace of God. He's got more. He's got more. So, like, it's just going to feel like a lot of our life is just going to be going back to the first five verses. <laughs> oh. And it's like, verse 6, he's got more grace. You can't outsin it. Can't run out of it. As long as Jesus is risen and reigning and interceding, there's always more grace. And it says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So who gets the grace? Those who will renounce their pride and come in humility. The solution doesn't come from inside man but from God. It's not about beating myself up. It's not about trying harder. It's about humbling myself before God and going, I need your grace. It's the open hand. It's the empty, open hand towards God. I can't fix this. can't make it go away. can't undo what I've done. And God goes, I have more grace if you'll just open your hand. Pride keeps it shut, right? Humility goes, I ain't got nothing. Humble repentance, grace. So there's two responses to this situation because God actually offers his grace to all of humanity. Here's your sin problem. Here's why your relationships are jacked up. Here's why your life's not working. And I, have a, I am offering every human being in the world my grace for your problem. And we'll either open our hands and receive it or we'll cleanse our fists and go, no, I'm going to do this myself. Or I don't deserve this, so I won't open my hands. Both are responses to pride. Both the idea that I don't think I need your grace, I can do this myself, and I think I'm too bad for your grace. Both are pride. How dare you not receive God's grace, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Spurgeon says, do you suffer from spiritual poverty? Well, that's your own fault, for he gives more grace. If you have not got it, it's not because it's not there to be had, but because you have not taken hold of it. And then we get, I think, which is an expression of humble repentance. What does humble repentance look like? We've got 10 commands here, all of them grace. We've got kind of like 10 commandments here. The 10 commandments of repentance, here you go. Mostly in couplets, they kind of go together. I'm, I've kind of put them together here. First one in verse 7 is pledge allegiance to God. We have two commands here. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Those go together. Submit is the idea of... Ordering your life under the leadership of someone. It's kind of a military term. We're still in military language here. Of like, obey your commanding officer. Come under his lordship. Quit trying to do it yourself. And resist, oppose, rebel against the devil. So I'm going to quit being an enemy with God. I'm going, I'm joining his team, which means I'm now declaring war on this team, right? So I'm going to switch sides. I'm 
friendship with the world, in league with Satan, in rebellion against God, uh, I'm going to go over here, be in allegiance to him and at war with him. And Satan flees. He's a coward. You, can say, you can't say the devil made me do it. <laughs> if you resist him, he flees. He has to. He has to. So it's switching sides. It's this idea of I'm now under submission of a new king, and I'm at war with a new enemy. I'm tired of being an enemy with God. I now want to be a friend of God and an enemy of Satan. Secondly, verse 8, seek intimacy with God. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, This made me think of the prodigal son. prodigal son runs away from his father, takes his inheritance, spends it, wastes it, just totally disrespects his father, essentially saying, Dad, I, I wish I had the inheritance instead of you. I want to take your blessing. I want to use it for my own pleasure. It's just that first part, right? Taking God's own breath and using it for your own glory. He's trying to take his father's wealth. I wish you were dead. I'm going to go spend this. And then when he comes to his senses, he takes, what, a couple steps home, and his father runs to him. And that's the picture. You take one step towards God, he'll come running to you. He'll come running to you. You don't have to try to make it right. You don't have to try to fix it all. Just draw near. Submit to him, resist the devil, draw near, and he will come running to you. It doesn't say draw near to God and he will save you, that's true. Or draw near to God and he will forgive you, that's also true. But it says what God really wants to do is be near and to have a relationship with you, to know you. That involves forgiveness, that involves saving, but ultimately the highest privilege of receiving the gospel is adoption into God's family. It wasn't just that the father forgave the prodigal son, but honored him, wrapped him in a robe, and threw a banquet. If you'll humble yourself and take one step home, your father runs to you, and he wants you to be with him. John 17, Jesus says this, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is being in an intimate relationship with God. Forgiveness and salvation is just a means to relationship. Those are just tools to get you into a relationship with God. Verse 8, second part of verse 8, pursue holiness before God. So now I've switched sides, I've submitted to him, I've declared war on evil, I don't want evil anymore, I'm drawn near to God, I'm in a relationship with him, and now I pursue holiness before God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you're double-minded. He talked about double-mindedness back in chapter 1, verse 8. That double-mindedness just ruins the ability to receive the gifts God's given you. It's just this, this two-minded thing of like, I'm over here and I'm over here. I'm loving, I've got, it's like my eyes don't go the same direction, right? I'm watching the world, I'm trying to watch God, and I don't, I don't really get either, right? I, never, I don't get to enjoy the world, and I don't really get to enjoy God because I'm trying to get both, right? It's miserable, be about one thing. So this idea of pursuing holiness before God, this is, why we have, this is why we have prayers of confession every Sunday, is we're actually just trying to live this out. We're just trying to live out this humble repentance every Sunday together of submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, seeking intimacy with him. And we have a time in our service where we pursue holiness before God. We cleanse our hands. We wash our hands through confession. We purify our hearts and try to be about one thing instead of double. Get our eyes pointed the same direction on one thing, fixing on one thing and not getting distracted. 
The idea here kind of goes back to the ceremonial cleansing of the Old Testament. Double-minded, daisuke, two-souled, cross-eyed, hypocritical, conflicted. I want to be about one thing. Seek first the kingdom, right? And then lastly, verse 9, feel contrition towards God. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The idea is lament the spiritual condition of the world. Lament the fact that you're not quite there yet. It's okay. I think Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I begin to feel about my sin the way Jesus feels about my sin. So I lament. It's not that there isn't a place for joy. He started the whole book with the idea of count it all joy. But when I think about my sin, I think about how it grieves God. I, I grieve the times when I do listen to the words of Satan or don't order my life. Oh, man, I grieve that. And I long for the day when that won't be the case, that I won't have that battle, that fight anymore. So it's this contrition before God. Verse 10, punchline. Humble yourself before God, for the Lord, and he will exalt you. I heard one pastor say that it's like grace runs to the low parts. Grace runs to the low parts. So the lower I go, the lower I posture myself, the more grace sort of like fills up, right? Like the water runs downhill, fills the valleys. If I, if I try to put myself up on the mountain kind of like in pride, well, there's no grace for me. But if I put myself in the low valley, that's where the grace is abundant, is in the low place. It runs downhill. So the bottom line in all of these actions after seeing our spiritual condition in verses 1 through 5 and what that says about the situation, even, even it seems among Christians here, God's solution is he gives more grace. And if you'll open your hand to receive it in humble repentance, he will exalt you. He will delight in you. He will lift you up. Conflict with others reveals pride. And we must exchange that pride for humility before God. Augustine, again, says, As a tree must strike deep roots downwards so that it can grow upwards, so everyone who has his soul fixed deeply in humility will exalt himself. God will exalt him. The deeper our roots go down in humility, the higher God will exalt us. We see in Psalm 51 where, where we have David confessing, Against you and you only have I sinned. And you see the contrition of his heart. But if you will cleanse me, if you will wash my hands, I will teach sinners your ways. It does feel like this has a little bit of Sermon on the Mount in it. As we have anger connected to murder. We have this, like I mentioned before, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let me go ahead and read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We get this upside-down kingdom, right? Like, this doesn't look like a thing that should win. Like, you fight fire with fire, right? Like, if, if the kingdom of God's going to win, it's got to take the reins of power and it's got to go, right? It's like, no, 
actually, it doesn't. That's not how it works. Humility is what wins. Humility before God. Humble repentance. Doesn't make any sense, but this is the way. We see this modeled in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. So this call to stop quarreling and to instead submit ourselves to God and entrust ourselves to him is just following the way of Jesus. Because Philippians 2 says this, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This sounds like James 4. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, going to the low place. By being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Didn't we just see that at the end? James 4, 10, humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, that's just what Jesus did. It's the only way to eternal life. Jesus showed us the way. Jesus did it for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and, be, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see that Jesus is the source and substance of this more, more grace. Jesus submitted and resisted the devil, did he not? Submitted himself to the will of God and then defeated him on the cross. The devil had to flee Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God drawing near. When you draw near to God, you, you come to Jesus. And Jesus himself, by taking on human flesh and coming to dwell in this world, he is the drawing near of God. Jesus is the drawing near of God. And that cleanse your hands, purify your hands. Where does it say that? Let me get it right. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses and purifies. We plead the merits of Jesus. And when it comes to sadness over sin, who was sadder than Jesus over sin? On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing the wrath. He says, I am sorrowful unto death as he thinks about going to the cross. And then Jesus, though humbled, being murdered by his own creation, was exalted to the highest place. We follow him in that same way. So Jesus, this whole thing is about Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. Bottom line, let me lay on the plane here. Our relational conflicts, our relational conflicts are a much bigger deal than we think. James calls them war, murder, adultery. Those conflicts with your spouse, your kids at work, your kids, or at work, sorry, <laughs> or your kids at work, I don't know. Neighbors, those relational conflicts are a bigger deal than you think. Complaints, sarcasm, grumpiness among the people of God is a bigger deal than we think. It's not that we shouldn't work through things. It's not that we all just are pushovers. But there's something about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that's really important to Jesus and says something about us when we betray that. 
Unmet expectations are the source of every one of your frustrations. Think about it. What you're frustrated about church or your marriage, your kids. It's all unmet expectations. You have something you're wanting from this and you're not getting it and it's their fault, right? My passions. Trace your complaints, your sarcasm, your grumpiness, your slander. Trace it back and I think you'll find that, oh, there's something in me that needs confessing. So relational conflicts are a much bigger deal than we think. They say something about our relationship with God. They say something about our relationship with each other and about the gospel. Secondly, our relational conflicts are much simpler than we think. It's actually much simpler than we think. Your pride is just bumping into the pride of someone else. Like our moms used to tell us, it takes two to fight, right? But it only takes one to murder, right? You could still be in the wrong, even if they're not in the wrong. These conflicts, that sin, pride somewhere, the mark of Christian faithfulness. What I find interesting is James doesn't even like try to decide who's right and who's wrong in the quarrel. Like that doesn't really matter as much. Like the mark of Christian faithfulness is not just rightness, but humility. Because here's the thing, you can be right and proud and God is against you. He talked about demons in chapter two. They're right on their doctrine. They are right, but they don't humble themselves before God. And so God is against them. You can be right, and if you're proud, God's against you. You can be wrong and proud too, God's against you. And I think that if you're wrong, maybe on something really serious, but you're humble, I don't think you'll be wrong for very long. And if you're right and humble, then God is for you, and he'll exalt you. You see the matrix? The Pharisees were right on a lot of stuff, but they were proud. The tax collectors and prostitutes weren't very right, but they were humble. Jesus received them. They became both right and humble. So being right matters, but being right in the right way matters most. Lastly, our way from war to peace with each other and with God is found only in living in humble repentance towards God together. All of these commands, all of this is in the corporate. These are all y'all. So I can't obey this scripture by myself. I have to have a community of believers that's submitting to God together, resisting the devil together, drawing near together. I have to be part of a community. These are communal things. He's speaking to a church. We as Americans tend to take all these commands as like, it's just me and Jesus, just me and my Bible, and I don't have any quarreling, so I guess I'm good. No, if there's quarreling in our body, even if I'm not involved in it, I have a responsibility because I can't obey this myself. This is corporate. Luther, in the first of the 95 Theses, says all of life is repentance. So it's not like we do this one time. This is now how we live. It's not just that he says God opposes those who have pride, as if it's a possession that's apart from us, but those who are proud, like that's who they are. And it's not just that he gives grace to those who have humility, as if it's this thing that we can sort of have, but those who are humble, like they are that. It's a way of life, not just an event, not just renouncing pride once, being humble once, and now I carry on with my day, but now I become, I go from being proud to being humble as a person, as an identity. If you think about our church covenant, if we just walk through our church covenant, you would just see we're just trying to walk out James 4, 6 through 10 together. We're 
you kind of have the whole thing right here in James 4. So let me just ask some questions. We're almost done. Are you delaying become a, becoming a Christian because of pride? Are you resisting church membership or baptism out of pride? Of being part of a believing community? Is there pride that's holding you back from knowing Jesus, from drawing near? You have to lay that down. God opposes, literally at war, with the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And these things that Scripture commands and invites us into, we have to obey those. We have to come to Him. Humbly repent before God. Submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, and mourn. Humble yourself and be exalted. God will never tire of giving grace. He will never tire of giving grace. One last thing from Spurgeon. This is from one of his devotionals, then we'll pray. Humble hearts seek grace, and therefore they get it. Humble hearts yield to the sweet influences of grace, and so it is bestowed on them more and more largely. Humble hearts lie in the valleys where the streams of grace are flowing, and hence they drink of them. Humble hearts are grateful for grace and give the Lord of glory, give the Lord glory for it. And hence it is consistent with his honor to give it to them because they glorify him in it. So he just gives them more because they glorify him in it. Come near, dear friend. Take a lowly place. Be little in your own esteem that the Lord may make much of you. Perhaps the sigh breaks out, I fear that I am not humble. It may be that that is actually the language of true humility. Some are proud of being humble, and this is one of the very worst sorts of pride. We're needy, helpless, undeserving, hell-deserving creatures. And if we are not humble, we ought to be. Let us humble ourselves because of our sins against humility. And then the Lord will give us a taste of his favor. It is grace that makes us humble, and grace which finds in this humility an opportunity for pouring out more grace. Let us go down that we may rise. Let us be poor in spirit that God may make us rich. Let us be humble that we may not need to be humbled. May we be exalted by the grace of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that confronts us in our sin and then gives us more grace. God, we thank you that that verse doesn't end, that there's always more grace for those that are humble. So God, I pray that you would root out pride in our hearts that if pride is keeping us from anything, God, that you would help us to kill it and that we would embrace humility. We thank you for giving us a roadmap for living out humility, to submit and resist, to draw near, to cleanse and to purify, to mourn and weep over our sin, knowing that when we take the low place before you in submission, you will exalt us. Pray, God that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that he has drawn near to us, that we would draw near to him, and that we would humbly repent of our sin and put all of our hope and trust in Jesus, who walked this road before us, so that he might walk us through that same road to himself. We pray that that would be true for every single person. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.